that's what I continue to love to do today is is to really celebrate what people bring to this world that is special and unique, not just their idiosyncrasies, but their competencies and what it is that they use to generate and actualize the value of their soul and physical material space in front of them. Welcome back to another edition of How I Create Me, where we passionately celebrate remarkable humans on their quest to thrive creatively in the commercial world. I'm your host, Jessica Matthews. This community gives me both the courage to keep going and the wisdom to try something different. I hope our collective stories resonate with your own internal spark, and we're so glad you're joining us. Invite others by rating the show on Apple or Spotify. This helps the algorithm critters introduce us to more folks and explore our happenings or chime into our conversation online at howicreate.me. Y'all, this episode was the hardest one I've done so far. It's just me, myself, and I having a conversation about my story. So here at How I Create Me, we celebrate remarkable humans, and I request and invite a lot of vulnerability and openness from the guests that come on the show. And I really look forward to celebrating our stories and engaging with you as my audience. And it seemed really important to follow through on that for myself with you guys and be willing to share my story and be vulnerable about where I've been in life and what my desires are for the future. So I did. I sat down and I answered the questions that I frequently ask my guests. And it was a lot trickier than I anticipated. When we share our stories, they really are such a precious and vulnerable piece of ourselves that we're offering to one another. Because of that, there's so much opportunity for connection when you dig into those deep places and you're willing to share what you have tucked away inside yourself, there's a lot that can be possible from from that starting point. But it is such a risk to do that from one human being to another. So I did it. I took the leap. I stumbled through it. I still have more to say. There was a lot left unsaid and there's a lot that I said that I'm like, yikes. Is that, did I say that the right way? Anyways, there's a lot of insecurity and fear that can surround using your own voice to tell your own story. So I, as a gesture of, you know, full commitment and participation in my own podcast with the guests that I bring on the show, I wanted to offer to you today a solo episode from me to you. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks for listening. Where did I grow up and what was the dynamic of my family and community environment? Who were key influences growing up? In what ways was I clear and in what ways was I foggy on who I was and what the future would look like? I grew up in the South and my parents were part of what I call the great uh, migration from the Midwest of the 80s. My dad graduated with a degree in engineering from Arizona State University and sent out applications to all 50 states and Georgia answered back. And my mom was like, where's that on the map again? (laughs) So far out of the radar of what they had anticipated for raising their family. But 
they came out here and we joined the great sprawling suburbs of Metro Atlanta. When I first was a little kid, the McDonald's drive-thru would still have the occasional horse that would go through <laughs> to order. Uh, now, uh, Gwinnett County is one of the most populous, if not the most populous county in the state of Georgia and has undergone dramatic transformation, which has been really exciting to see, actually. Uh, but I'm the oldest of four siblings. And we grew up really close, actually. I was homeschooled for a good portion of my upbringing. And each of my siblings and I had like a different educational experience, but we all ended up spending some time at home. And I think that meant that we fought out most of our differences by the time we hit high school. <laughs> so I was actually really good friends with my mom. And really good friends with my siblings. We really, really bonded in college because by that point we had all gone through puberty and got a lot of the angst out. But definitely that turn started a little earlier for us. And I, I credit that to being around each other all the time, which in our post pandemic or current pandemic, however you describe it, our new normal people are spending so many more hours with their intimates. And I think it, it can be really beneficial, but it's a lot of work and you get a lot of reward for the hard work, but it's not always guaranteed to work out that way. So I feel really lucky that I'm as close with my family as I am. So we all live all over the United States now, which is makes us sad, but Thankfully, there's plenty of tools to stay connected in really meaningful ways, uh, like obnoxious group chats <laughs> full of crazy memes and pictures and links. <laughs> what was my first memory of thinking about my creative gifts and wrestling with how to use them more intentionally? I was always very different from my siblings. I was the deep thinker, the the one that people had a hard time understanding or relating to. I did sports like the rest of my family, but I did gymnastics, which is more of an individual, less of a team sport than say softball or basketball or soccer or any of those where you're working as a unit together. That's not to say that none of my siblings are creative or anything. Like everybody in my family has like a really deep creative streak to them, but what I gravitated towards were the more, I guess, fine artsy side of creativity and it felt pretty alienating at times. I always wanted to be creative, but I also grew up with the understanding that that's not really how you made money and that's not how you, how you made your way in life was not through being a creative person. Uh, but I'm really grateful that my dad and mom encouraged me to get my education. And that was like an expected sort of part of life was that we would go from high school into college, but he didn't force me to major in something that I wasn't interested in. So he was really supportive of me doing that, even though he was clear that he did not understand why I would want to go get an English degree or study film. <laughs> if I knew it wasn't going to make me money. And so that was the assumption was always that I was doing something I loved, but that would, I would always be poor because of it. 
why did I choose to go to Clemson and study literature and language arts and film? What did this open my eyes to? And who were some of the influential people that entered my life? How did my worldview fundamentally change through this experience? So my educational journey was being homeschooled and then going to a small private Christian school where I was the valedictorian of a class of 45 people. But when I say valedictorian, I mean, I tested over a hundred in all of my subjects. I tested out of all of my vocabulary books and was quizzing myself on stuff. I was writing and taking tests and winning poetry competitions for fun on the weekends. I was super into being a student and I loved it. And if you could pay me to be a student for the rest of my life, I would hands down take it and do that. (laughs) Um, From there, I went to a small seminary in the mountains of Georgia because literally my best friend was going there. (laughs) They had just re-outfitted their communications department with a bunch of top of the line Macs and editing software. That was back when Final Cut was the big big cheese. So I knew that if I went to this small university, I would basically have the run of all this really expensive brand new equipment and wouldn't have to compete with other people. I could do kind of whatever I wanted. So I did. And I had a great time. We made uh, incredible, fun short films. I was the editor in chief of the college newspaper for a while, but I turned in my resignation because I got sick of having to prop up the institution's ideals with what I was publishing. And we weren't even pushing the envelope that much. (laughs) Um, I became the point of intersection between people who didn't fit in there and the administration, not as like a self-styled intercession, but like I was, I kind of positioned myself so that my friends were the people that were neglected and not cared for and were not held up as good examples of wonderful humans, even though in my experience with them, they were the most wonderful humans that were on campus. But I somehow got away with being part of that crowd and not being punished for it because uh, I wasn't compliant. I just knew how to sort of appease the rules. But by the end of it, I was paying a fine instead of having to go to chapel services because I was so over this construct of Christendom that I was expected to buy into and embrace. And I was just saw it treating people I cared about very deeply, very horribly, and was not, not there for it. So uh, I knew I was going to be moving on to a different school. Even when I went, I just wanted two years of rooming with my best friend and having my run of all the equipment. <laughs> I go to a bigger university. So I chose Clemson University because it's the only university within driving distance, easy like weekend driving distance of my home where I had three younger siblings still that had their film studies program nestled in their English program. So I didn't want to go to school to learn how to make movies because I knew technology moved too fast for that. Um, It's much better to make movies by just making movies. And I did, though, want to get knee deep into what movies meant and the criticism and the storytelling and the understanding of how we construct our own perception of ourselves in the world through those arts. To me, film is the best of all the worlds of art because it is simultaneously incredibly highbrow. You can spend your whole life figuring out 
all of the depth that is brought to the screen in the cinematography, the framing, the acting, the directing, all the layers, the score, the script, it, it just really pulls from all different disciplines of art and brings them all together into this one unique sequential moment. It's also the most lowbrow of the arts because movie theaters started out as like the sleazy place you went to spend your weekends if you like didn't have anything better to do. And you can watch a movie and not even speak the language and you can know exactly what's going on and you can feel what they want you to feel. And my two-year-old understands movies just as well, if not better than my husband and I. And in that sense, it has a very unifying effect. And it also is immersive. It puts you outside of yourself. It forces you to take on and the experience of this other world, right? For this set amount of time. That's what I wanted to immerse myself in. But uh, Clemson had a, their English program was split so that you, there was like a literature track and then there was writing and publications. So I went and did writing and publications and then film studies. And I was also one, <laughs> I refused absolutely to take one class called communications research methods. <laughs> Otherwise I would have graduated with like a double or triple major or something like that. I don't know. Uh, to go back to the transcripts. But basically, I didn't want to take that class. So I took all the other classes that I wanted. But I, it comes in really encountered whole worlds of people and ideas that have been completely excised from my very spiritual, religious upbringing. And I do want to clarify that I don't think my family was as it's not like my family was hook, line, and sinker on board with all of the different religious or spiritual institutions that we were a part of while I was growing up. And I, I really credit my parents for setting the example of being able to, to be in community with somebody that you didn't agree with and still respect their perspectives and find value in what they brought to the table, but also stand your ground on things that you're like, uh, no, I think you're wrong on that. So by the time I got to Clemson, though, and I discovered that so much of my world was missing because people at these institutions didn't want to talk about it or refused to let people that they didn't approve of have a seat at the table. And I was completely overwhelmed and disgusted uh, with it. And I think I even called my mom at one point and I was like, I mean, you can talk to God if you want to, but he and I are so done. Like, I'm never talking to him again. <laughs> and my relationship actually with deity, spirituality, and sacred text was healed at Clemson after being destroyed at seminary. So English literature brought sacred text back to life for me in a in a way that was safe and approachable and inclusive and being taught by women who had lived really remarkable lives also saved me. <laughs> um, I had one class called the Holocaust Literature and Arts, and it was a three-hour class once a week. And it was team taught by an English professor and a German professor. And to this day, it's one of the things in my life I'm the most grateful for because they only taught that class for 12 years. And I was, um, I think, the second to last class that they taught. And 
it was a mixed class of, of students from all different disciplines. And we basically went through what does evil look like in the world? and who is capable of it and who isn't and what lies do we tell ourselves about our own complicity and then how do we take something so overwhelming and heartbreaking as six million people systematically murdered and turn that into art that helps us understand who we are that helps us heal that helps us remember and helps us forget and how do we do that together from all different walks of life. And that class is one of the most life-changing experiences that I've had. What was it like starting my life and career post-graduation? What was hard? What was exciting? What was enlightening about it? And what tensions did I experience? I graduated with this incredible degree, taking all the classes that I really wanted to take, including extra ones I didn't need for credit, but I just soaked up the college experience and graduated like most people of my generation with a lot of debt. However, kudos and shout out to my parents that that debt was dramatically smaller than the bill that was presented because of their generous support. And I feel so grateful for that. And I also felt sense of responsibility not to continue, even though I wanted to go on to a master's that I, I needed to start working and making money and paying my debts and establishing a household separate from my parents. They had three younger siblings that uh, were also, you know, rolling right off into college. <laughs> rolling right, And I guess as the older sister, I felt this deep sense of responsibility to you know, take my turn and move on so that my siblings could come behind me and, and get support as well. And my poor parents would have something to enjoy at the end of it. <laughs> so I went to work, but I was in this weird space of not wanting to be a teacher because I already had lost faith in our educational system to support teachers. <laughs> and as much as I love teaching, I knew that I needed more support than that fight required, like it would be a fight. So I didn't go the route of being a teacher. Uh, I went the route of being a writer, but I didn't want to write just to promote products. So I wanted to write and think, and you don't get paid for writing and thinking unless you're really lucky. Um, and you work really hard and you really pursue doing that, but that wasn't going to pay the bills that were due next month or the month after that. So I did a little bit of film production, but I was sexually harassed like most other young pretty women. And I was like, well, I don't really want to deal with that every day. So I'll just come back when I'm old and ugly. So I left film production expecting to come back to it much later in life. And that made me really sad because I loved being on set and I loved the intimacy that comes with those long hours together of waiting in between takes and um, being able to explore things together. There's so much that people have to share and so much that they're doing. But that was before the Me Too movement and it was completely normal to harass incoming young artists, let alone people who were the talent in front of the camera, et cetera. So I was like, I'm really good at producing, but I, I just don't like, no, gross. I don't want to be put myself on under that. So I went 
and managed a retail store. And it ended up being so wonderful. I really, really enjoyed my time there. My first long and longest sort of stint in the same role was managing a public school uniform store or in private schools, mostly private schools, uh, uniform store. And it was a family business that was started here in Atlanta. And I managed it right in like sort of the tail end of its glory years before it was purchased by a venture capital company and basically run into the ground. So it's not around anymore, which is heartbreaking to me, but there's such wonderful people that were part of it. And again, I was surrounded by these incredibly strong women. Almost the entire management and sales team uh, were all women and watching them be so good at what they did and wrestle out their own differences and occupy space in a world that basically rejected a lot of the things that maybe made their lives meaningful in terms of their community and values. So it was owned by a Jewish family. Many of the people who worked there were Jewish, and yet we were serving these Christian schools, public schools, made Saturday the busiest shopping day of the week, never paused for any of the Jewish holidays who didn't have really any interest in sort of the integrated experience of diversity that was available at the store. So my dressing rooms at that store would be full at any given time with somebody from like a tiny Baptist church or a Muslim school or a public charter school or a lottery-based school or a boarding school with international students. They would all be in this like wonderfully democratizing equivalent space of fitting room, (laughs) putting on clothes that everybody thought were so ugly Um, because they are steeped in tradition and, you know, kids have a hard time embracing tradition. Many of them, not all. But watching all of those dynamics unfurl was really special to me and provided a a really lovely intersection, actually, between my deep desire to be inclusive and respectful of people from all walks of life that I could, you know, put myself in front of and serve them because wearing clothes is and selling clothes to people is such an intimate thing, especially when you're doing it for their kids. I had a mom who pulled me aside and was like, my daughter's been asking me about shaving her legs, but I never did. So I don't know how that works. And is she old enough or is she not old enough? And I don't know what to buy for her. (laughs) I had a sixth grader that came out and he put on his vest and his jacket and he put them, he put like the suit jacket on and then the vest over top of it because he literally never seen anybody wear a suit before in his whole life he didn't have that experience and so I I was able to like help him get it on you know in the right order of operations and he came back out and suddenly the iconography clicked and he looked at himself in the mirror and he turned to his dad with this huge smile on his face and said dad I'm gonna be a businessman and you could just see the family like light up because this little boy had a for the first time that he would be able to escape the disadvantaged situation that he was in. I went to public schools where I would be sizing the children 
and they would be wearing adult sizes because of the obesity, because the diets that they were being fed were so insufficient for their needs. And then I would go to these, you know, more exclusive, very expensive schools and measure the kids. And they were like, all literally the same size and had all the same kind of hair color and there was no diversity at all in their world and that didn't make them any less important than the student at a highly diverse disadvantaged school i was equally servant to both and uh, it was a really really lovely way to bring some healing to a lot of the splitting that i had had felt in college and in my education between the haves and the have-nots and the people who were right and the people who were wrong and the institutional loyalty. So I really deeply enjoyed that a lot. So as my career progressed, I kept that same love of serving people and meeting them in places of vulnerability that helped them assimilate into a larger cultural moment, then applied it to a lot of different places. So I've done web development, I've done a film festival, I've done tech support, customer support. The common through line in all of it was finding a place where I could serve people, elevate their voices and give them a feeling of competence and connection. And uh, that's what I continue to love to do today is, is to really celebrate what people bring to this world that is special and unique, not just their idiosyncrasies, but their competencies and what it is that they use to generate and actualize the value of their soul in physical material space in front of them. How has my story changed through my career into becoming an entrepreneur? And what gave me the courage to start to do my own thing? Where did I find encouragement or where did I find fear and how did I overcome that fear? I got the courage to start my own thing because a client came and asked me to. I was staying at home as a mom after experiencing discrimination that I could have taken to court, but chose not to for a lot of reasons. And I was missing being in the adult world, but also very okay with not being part of the nine to five grind. And a client came and said, well, if you had the time and if you would be willing and interested, here's how much I value your opinion on this problem that I have. And here's what I want to pay you. Not asking, hey, can you do this for me as a favor? Not asking, hey, you're not doing anything like so completely respectful of the fact that it was a full-time job to be a mom. It still is, even though I do other things as well. It didn't diminish the responsibility, the, the headspace that gets taken up by that. So I felt so completely seen, respected, and valued. And that really gave me a lot of courage to offer what I had on terms that I could do so in a way that protected my family and the memories I want to make with my son and the kind of person that I want to be around my son. I think that is the source of a lot of the courage. How I overcame the fear of it, though, the fear was that I'm a pretty private person and I think about things so deeply that if I share anything, the fact is that I've probably thought about it 10 ways till Sunday. And I get afraid that if I don't share it in exactly the right way, 
that people will assume certain things haven't been accounted for in my calculations of what I'm saying. So it's a really vulnerable place for me to be talking about what it is that I care about or what it is that I think. And I think some of that comes from that customer service mindset and experience where the last thing that you can do is tell the customer exactly what you think. But in some ways, that's the only thing you can do. So you have to kind of, to be really good at that, you have to sort of modify, be able to have so much empathy that you can find a point where you can relate to how that person feels. It's not duplicitous at all. It's a very hard work and worth it to empathize with people and to be able to meet them where they are. But consequently, there's a lot of deeper things that get hidden and tucked away that are, you just don't get to share them and you don't get to be seen in that way. And so it takes a lot of courage for me, even now on this podcast and in my work to be willing to say what it is that I'm thinking and not let the fear of being misunderstood or seen as being less than or different than I am, you know, stand in the way of participating in the conversation. What do I think most creatives should start or stop doing based on my experience? So I think that most creatives should start slowing down. My to-do list is forever long, every day. have a whole list that can never be done, but I enjoy doing things. So I need to put less on my list, basically, is what it boils down to. And I think that's true for many creatives. There needs to be less on my list because I see very clearly in myself that I have spent my whole lifetime doing my to-do list, which was made me hugely successful in my jobs because Every job, you know, capitalism is set up to pull as much work out of an individual as possible. And that's okay. That's the mechanism that's there. And there's got to be other mechanisms that balance that out. But I see in myself that my most creative time was when I did an internship where it was, it was a meditative internship at um, like a modern day monastery. And I spent eight hours every day, not doing anything. Like that was the job (laughs) and my creativity just exploded. And my journals from that three months are full of artwork that now I couldn't replicate if I wanted to, because my mind is so full of my (laughs) to-dos. So I have to make space. I have to slow down so that I can be present. And I think that means certainly some sacrifice, earning fewer dollars, perhaps doing some of my own work, like instead of getting food out, being the one that does the cooking takes time, but it's slower (laughs) and, and not doing it just for health reasons, but because I just need to not be doing this all day long. So I need to slow down. So I think that's something that creatives can start doing is slowing down and not feeling bad about it. I think the other thing that they need to stop doing is giving things away when they haven't told the other person that it's a gift. I see this happen all the time. People put discounts on their invoices or they'll do some consulting work, but not charge anything and not tell anything or they'll volunteer in this community and take a leadership role or something but not clarify 
well, me, do, I'm, that means I'll be spending X hours of my time and, and my time is worth X dollars per hour. So that's, that's what I'm giving. That's my gift. And because if you don't, if you don't do that, if you don't say those things out loud, then people don't know to classify it as a gift and generosity. They don't know that it's not something that, that was just theirs already. <laughs> you know, we, humans, uh, we assume everything around us is ours for the taking or for the use because we're resourceful animals, right? We do, we, we do what we need to, to survive and to thrive and to take care of ourselves and those connected to us. And so if it's not distinguished and set apart as this is special and I am giving it to you, then there's just an opportunity for resentment. There's opportunity for bitterness. There's opportunity for a need, real need when you're giving things away, you should be charging for. <laughs> and we all want to be good people and be perceived as good people, but it's not always obvious unless you state the obvious. So send the invoice right in the email. Hey, uh, I'm so glad I got to, you know, put together this poster, you know, do the graphic design on this poster for you, just for the, for the records of the organization. Here's a copy of the invoice. And it's been my pleasure to give this to you because I believe so much in what you're doing. And I just wanted to thank you for that opportunity. Okay. So then the next time that that organization comes back to ask you for something, they're going to know that you're giving it to them. And maybe if they have the budget, they'll pay you for it next time. Or you can confidently say, I am so sorry, you know how much I care about you guys, but I have to decline because uh, I don't have that bandwidth in my surplus to be able to give this time. But please ask me again, because I do want to give. And I think it was Brene Brown that said that people will ask you more if they trust that you'll say no when you need to say no. What's the lasting impact that I hope to have through this podcast, the relationships that I build through my business and influence? What is my life story that I want people to be able to hold on to? So it's really taxing sometimes to step back and try to look at the whole story or the big picture. I think it feels like a lot because it in some ways implies a taking on of responsibility, right? If you say, hey, this is my life and this is the decisions I made and this is how I got to where I am and this is where I want to go in the future, there's a level of accountability that's just sort of embedded in the action of doing that thing and telling that story. And yet that can be such a powerful tool for navigating all of the plethora of choices <laughs> that are available. Um, so much of our world right now, people actualize themselves through preferences like clothing or settings on a phone or customizing a backdrop, or this is how I have things set up on my phone and my device, or uh, this is what I like to eat and the restaurants I like to go to. Like, that's all like preferences. It's not only preferences, but it's preference-based for the most part. And when we sit down though, and try to tell a story, that's not, you know, a story is not a list of preferences that doesn't tell you who I am. <laughs> it, it can give you clues, but that's, that's not really the full narrative. And so sitting back and coming up with a narrative and telling the story to yourself of who you are 
so that you can share that with other people, create a point of connection, but also this like helps you kind of get a little bit above the storm. And in this podcast, I want people to feel seen and heard. There's this beautiful image and I've looked for the text that I read this in somewhere for years and I have yet to find it again. But there's a beautiful image I read somewhere of like an ancient walled city that had guards on the walls, that there were two different types of guards. There were the guards that looked out to see what was coming toward the city, but then there were those that looked into the city. And you can read that a lot of different ways, right? You could read that as like big brother. You could read that as you know, this very like controlling mechanism. But in the context of the text, it was mostly about there being a witness to people's lives and that it's just as important to witness that internal self, to witness the community and connections, to witness your growth and change as it is to guard against anything that could threaten you or to look forward to whatever the next opportunity is, that that internal space deserves just as much attention and care. And that's not like a mental health plug or like a psychology above all other things plug. That's just the internal experience that's synthesized in one person and their perspective is so valuable and it's so worth being witnessed and being respected and being listened to and understood and empathized and, and everybody's story is worthy. And so from my journey through customer service and into consulting and from you know, being the older sister to being a mom, all of those different things connect to putting myself under and understanding, or as one of my lit professors said, standing under the weightiness of the witness that you're bearing in that story. Um, by seeing things and not being afraid of looking at what is hard and not being afraid to see the performance and celebrate the performance and that sense of bearing witness. Well, folks, that's my story, or at least the first version of it that I've ever shared (laughs) publicly with the world. Thank you so much for listening, for tuning in and being present with me and an enormous expression of gratitude to all the people that contributed to who I am today. I'm, I'm really feel, um, and holds all of you in that space, um, inside. And it really is, uh, very special to me, um, that, uh, you were part of my world and I'm so grateful. So, so grateful. Uh, also, Big shout out and thank you to my producer, Jeff Bond at Chat with Leaders Media. He was so careful and so kind in how he approached doing this episode with me, his encouragement, his editing, um, and his support along the way, uh, really helped me be brave and feel confident putting this, uh, out into the world. So thank you for tuning in. That's another party in the bag for how I create me. We're incredibly grateful that you welcomed our content into your headspace. We take it very seriously that we should bring light and goodness to your soul. So don't be shy about sharing your thoughts. How'd we do? Do you want to hear more? What should we talk about next? To stay connected and get amongst the details, visit howicreate.me. 
Are there other people in your world that should join the party? Invite others by rating the show on Apple or Spotify. This helps the algorithm critters introduce us to more folks. Like, share, follow, and all the social media things. That'll help too. Explore our happenings or chime into our conversation online at howicreate.me. This podcast would not be possible without the generous efficiency of our executive producer and production team at Chat with Leaders Media. Learn how you can launch your own podcast to grow your business at chatwithleaders.com. Thanks again for listening. May you go forth and thrive.